Well, I feel like I need to introduce myself again. It's been a while since I've been around because I've been working so much. Uh, but I am very, very glad and excited to be with you guys tonight. Uh, and as you know, in our reading plan, we're covering Galatians, Ephesians, First, um, Second Thessalonians. So tonight I want to talk about First uh, Thessalonians. We're going to kind of go through most of the book together. But I, before I kind of launch into my, my message here, I want to kind of tell you a little story. And it'll be relevant to what we're going to talk about here in a minute. Um, as, as many of you know, I work, uh, I'm a nurse in the emergency room at Methodist Hospital. And I see all sorts of patients. Usually they're always at their worst, right? When I see them, they're at their sickest or uh, struggling with all sorts of different situations. And I remember the story, and I'll be very careful here how I explain this. I remember the story of a particular patient who was struggling from a chronic illness. But this chronic illness was being made worse by the choices they were making, okay? As I was taking care of this patient, the patient oftentimes, because they were in so much pain, would, would be angry, and they would say things that were kind of rude or, or almost offensive. And, you know, initially you want to be like, well, why are you being a jerk to me? Like, I'm here, I'm trying to help you. Like, I'm, I'm trying to take care of you and, and get you back to better health, but you're, you're being really rude to me. And the truth is you have to kind of separate your feelings in those situations because oftentimes when people are in so much pain and they're hurting, they're just searching for a way to escape that pain, right? So the only thing they know to do sometimes is go back to, to saying something or yelling or doing something they feel like anything they can try to maybe make them feel just a little bit better. So then as you go on as a nurse, a good nurse will not only take care of the immediate problem, but one of the most important things that we do as nurses is that we educate our patients. We educate them so that we can prevent them from coming back to the emergency room again. We tell them about life changes they can make, things they can do differently so that they will have a better quality of life. But again, in certain situations, when you have to bring to a person and let them know that, hey, the choices that you're making is causing your pain to be the way it is and is causing you to sometimes end up back in this situation. Some people don't take that very kindly. Even when you're saying it very nicely and lovingly, and, and if any of you have had family members that have maybe not been making the best decisions and you've told them, hey, you've you got to stop doing that because it's just making things worse, sometimes they take that on on you, they get angry and they, they yell at you, but it's, it's not your fault, right? But you happen to be there. And the cost of caring sometimes is that you get the hurt that people are feeling directed toward you. But you keep trying because you care about the person. You keep trying because you know that they need to hear what is being said. Even if it means that they say something mean to you, or even if it seems like they're persecuting you because you're trying to help them. So that's all going to be relevant to what we're talking about here. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's widely believed that 1 Thessalonians is Paul's first letter to any real congregation. It's one of his earliest letters that was written. Both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which was written a little later, are often quoted books when referencing the blessed hope of the return of Christ. We're all familiar with 1st Thessalonians 4, 16 through 19, right? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive in Christ, uh, alive and remain, shall be caught up together to meet them in the air. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're familiar with that passage. We shout about that passage. And we should. It is comforting to know. But the truth is, what's in the book of Thessalonians 
is more than just a message about the return of Christ. Paul is trying to let the church know that if they are going to make it to that day, to the return of Christ, there are some things that have to be put in place. There are some things that they have to do to be able to reach that hope. And so that's what we're going to kind of talk about as we go through 1 Thessalonians tonight. But you cannot understand what 1 Thessalonians is all about if you don't understand why Paul wrote the letter in the first place. So you have to actually back up to Acts chapter 17 and see the first encounter that Paul really has in the city of Thessalonica. Okay, so we're going to start there in Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 13. I'm going to read through some of these kind of quickly, and I'm just going to go back and explain them. So here we're picking up. Paul is out on, a, on his evangelistic mission field, and he's in Thessalonica, and this is what happens. This is the story. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. I want to pause there for just a moment. It says, as was Paul's custom, he went into the church, he went into the synagogue. And he went there to challenge their false teachings and false doctrines. The first place that true doctrine should be taught is here. The reason being is because if we within these four walls can't agree on what truth is, how can we save those who are out in the world lost? If we are not united in what this gospel message is, how can we ever be effective as a church? So Paul often first started in the synagogue to those who were already believers at least in God, but yet didn't know the full truth. And then he carried that message beyond there. Verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. This means that only a few Jews believed, but a lot of the Greeks, a lot of the Gentiles believed what Paul was teaching. Verse 5, But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city of an, on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus." And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security, or you can think of it as a bond, they posted a bond, uh, of Jason and of the others, uh, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, whose coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women which were Greeks, and of men not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. So what happens here is Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica. He's preaching the truth. But the Jews that were there, they felt threatened. Their influence over the people was being threatened because some of the Jews were now following what Paul was teaching. 
So their response was, hey, I got an idea. The way we got rid of Jesus was to go to Pilate and tell Pilate that Jesus was trying to overthrow the Roman government. And they try essentially the same stunt here with Paul. They, they go to the Roman leaders and they say, hey, these people are saying that Jesus is the only king, so we got to get rid of, we got to get rid of Paul. So they, start, they come to Jason's house, who was a, a man who basically was one of Paul's friends, if you will, and look for Paul. They couldn't find him. So Paul had to, be, uh, had to leave the city under the cover of darkness. The church was being oppressed on all sides. The Greeks didn't mind that these new Christians believed in Jesus. In fact, as many of you have probably heard preach before, they actually erected an, a, an altar or a statue to the unknown God. They had so many different gods. They're like, hey, look, what's, what's the harm in adding another God here as well? So they didn't care that, that Paul was coming and preaching about, about a God. But what they cared about was that, that, that Paul was saying this was not just a God, but that he was the only God and that he was the king of kings. So the Greeks became mad. And of course, the Jews became mad because not only do they reject the notion of Jesus being the Christ, but they were more upset by the fact they were losing the power over the people. Paul and his companions have been chased out of the city. Paul's first big mission trip seems like it has failed miserably. So now that we have just a little bit of context, we can look into the first letter written to the church of Thessalonica. Imagine the mindset that Paul has. Paul fleeing from, from Thessalonica, knowing the persecution that's going on, knowing how that, that the, those who are believing are being beaten and imprisoned. So he writes this letter to them. Let's pick up in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. I want you to just remember that word affliction there. Now, as you read through most of Paul's letters that he's written throughout his, his very prolific ministry, you will notice that Paul uses a pretty similar pattern each time he writes an epistle. It's not always the exact formula, but it's pretty close. He usually opens his letters with a greeting, with an introduction, and with a reminder of what the people have experienced. He begins by telling them how he is so glad that they have turned to Christ, how that they are living for God, and reminds them of the hope that they have in God. That's how he usually opens the beginning of all his letters. Next in this process, Paul begins to address the reasons for why he is writing the letter in the first place. Usually this is off, uh, used to offer both correction for a problem that he notices, as well as encouragement to continue to grow in their faith. Now I want you to catch what Paul does here in this next section. Remember, Paul was opposed by the Jews and the Greeks. They sought to take him captive, forcing him to flee the city. But listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. So the first thing that Paul lets them know in these first three verses is that we had already suffered persecution in Philippi, but we didn't let that stop us from coming to talk to you here in Thessalonica. And when we came to Thessalonica, knowing that we were probably going to be treated the same way, we didn't come in, in trying to use anger or, or deceit or any of those things. Instead, we came and we, we were honest and truthful, and we did it humbly and meek, uh, out of meekness and in love. Verse 4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses. And God also, how holily and justly and unblamely we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. One thing that Paul does all throughout his letters is that he sets the example he tells them what he wants them to do, but then he tells them how that he lived out that example. So one thing that's going to happen here is in this letter is he's going to tell the people that you're suffering persecution, you're suffering affliction, but despite that, I want you to continue to work toward the gospel, and I want you to do it in love, and I want you to do it with peace, and to be humble, and I don't want you to do it out of a sense of, of power or coveting others. And then he explains, that's what I did. That's what me, Sylvanus, and Timothy, when we came and we spoke to you, knowing how we were going to be treated, we did it this way. Remember, Paul's also the one who says, follow me as I follow Christ. You can never hope to truly be effective in God's kingdom if you are not first living it. People will follow what you do way more than they will follow what you say. So if you are preaching the gospel but living a life of the world, you're not going to have an effective ministry. But if you are living the life that God has called you to live, you don't have to move your lips all that often. Because your life will speak so much louder than flattering words. And that's what Paul is saying. Well, we didn't come to you with flattering words. I didn't come to you with the most elegant speech. I came to you and lived the life as a demonstration for you. And because of that, you believed on Christ through me. Because of that, you now walk in faith. And he was letting them know that even though at that time they had not yet believed on Christ, yet he loved them already to come to them because he wanted to see them 
receive salvation. Now, Paul is setting something up here. I'm, I'm trying to paint a little bit of a picture for you because I, I want to show you what Paul was trying to teach the church. Now we go to, uh, so, so, so Paul opens his letter with a greeting and a reminder of the blessed hope that they have in Christ. Then Paul shows how that they are, are here to act by his, his example. Now we're going to see the instruction that he gives the church, starting in chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother, and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning the faith. So here, what he's saying is that we could not come back to you, but I cared about you enough, I wanted to send you this letter. This is the letter that we're reading right now. I wanted to send you a letter through Timothy to comfort you. That no man, verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. Remember that, that word I said, remember, here it is again, right? That no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Wow. He says not only to not be moved by the afflictions, but he says we were appointed unto these afflictions. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. He said, man, I was so concerned for you, so unsure, nerve-wracking, biting my nails. I wanted to know what your status was. I had to send Timothy to find out what was going on. But now when Timothy came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also you. So Paul was very happy to hear that the church not only was enduring the affliction, but was growing, was strong in the faith. Paul reminds the church that pain is a part of the process, that they would continue to suffer afflictions, but I want you to notice how he reminds them to respond to this affliction. Paul could have told the church not to worry because God was going to punish all of those people. He could have told them, stick your noses up at them because they're going to get theirs. But that's not what Paul says. That's not how Paul tells them to react. In verse 12, listen to what Paul says. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in a holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul tells the church in no uncertain terms that if they hope to remain or stand blameless before the Lord, they must have love for one another and for them that are causing the affliction they are suffering. Man, that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Paul tells the church, the only way that you as a church can say that you're unblameable, that you can stand before God, is not just that you love one another in these four walls, because that's easy to do sometimes. Sometimes it's hard. But it's easier to do because we all have a common goal. We all, we all kind of believe the same thing. We all kind of are in this together. We're a group. It's, it's easier for us to say we love one another but it's a little harder sometimes to say we love the person who's intentionally afflicting us, who rejects Christ, who 
is, is telling us that it's all made up and, and that we're fools for following Christ and, and that we should stop because look at how our lives are struggling. And Paul tells us that, no, that's, that's part of the process. That for you to be effective, you must love them also. In chapter 4, Paul goes on to give further instructions to the church on things they need to work on. He tells them they have brotherly love, but they need to have it even more. Man, and I read that in chapter 4, uh, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of chapter 4, but in chapter 4, he says this essentially. He says, of brotherly love, you have no need that I write to you. Because you, you get this, you, you got that. But you need to have it even more. What this tells me is the process of loving others is not something that you achieve at a level and then you're golden. Then you, you don't have to worry about it anymore. You love someone, great. Now, now I've learned that lesson. But love, much like forgiveness, is a process. We have to continue to, to, to love someone because people end up hurting us again. Even after we forgive them and we say we love them and then they do something else that's wrong and hurts us again, well, he's saying, yeah, you have to increase your level of love a little more. Endure that affliction that, that was caused unto you. Because your love, as much as you already have, you have to increase. Why? Because the Bible says that God is love. That's, that's the pinnacle. That's the perfection. And we've not reached that. So we have to continue to grow in our love to be more like God. We can never forget that the Lord is returning. Now see, I want to, at the end of chapter 4, he reminds the church, that, that verse that I kind of quoted to you in the beginning, uh, verses 16 through 19, the Lord shall, shall descend from heaven. And he finishes by saying, comfort one another with these words. And it's true, we can never forget, we can never take our eyes off of the prize that Christ is returning. In, in, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, all of the pain and the suffering will melt away. All of the struggles that we've endured, all of the loss and the heartache that continue to plague us in this life will seem so small, so minuscule when we stand in the presence of God. And I can imagine, I'm trying to put myself there, that if, if I'm the, the, the church member at Thessalonica and I'm hearing these words, no, no doubt, being preached by Timothy as he's relaying this message from Paul, it's, we're getting at the, the altar call now. Now we're getting ready, right? Because he's talking about the return of Christ. Now they're ready to get and to have their shout on. But there's still another chapter. Paul doesn't stop at the end of chapter 4. In fact... He lets them know in chapter 5 what it is he's trying to, to, to tell them in the whole letter. He says, yeah, Christ is going to return. Comfort one another with these words. But then in the very next verse he says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, if we were to stop right here, there are people who would say, listen, you don't need to worry about the rapture. You don't need to worry about end time. Because look, Paul tells us, don't, don't worry about the times. He comes as a thief in the night. But you can't read things out of context. You have to read the whole context to understand what Paul's saying. Paul is talking to the church. So the first verse here, he says, but of you, brethren, you have no need that are right of the times and seasons. And he's doing two things. Number one, he's, he's letting them know they are not the people who are going to experience that time. But more importantly than that, 
What is happening in chapter 4 is they have become concerned with those who've died in the faith. What's going to happen to them? There was this horrible false doctrine that had creeped into the church that Christ had already returned and that they had missed. It's called praetorism. It's this horrible doctrine that basically told the church that why are you hoping? Why are you waiting? Christ already returned and nothing changed. So he's giving them the hope, but he's also reminding them that you cannot live your Christian life only focused on the return of Christ, that you neglect to do the ministry that you were placed here for. While we must comfort one another in the promise that Christ is going to return, while we must watch for his return, which we're going to see here that Paul instructs them to do, we cannot do it at the neglecting of our ministry. Because God did not call just you to heaven. God did not just call you to go to heaven. But it's God's will that none should perish. Now, unfortunately, not everyone will accept the message. But we don't choose who gets to hear the message and who doesn't. Our ministry is to teach the gospel to anyone who will listen. And so while we must watch for the return of Christ, we must also carry out the kingdom of heaven on this earth. We must preach the gospel and be instant in season and out of season. So let's pick back up now in verse 2 where he says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in the darkness. That that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourself. Now in a minute, I'm going to finish out this chapter because what he does here is he says, listen, the world may say peace and safety. The world may say that this president or this Caesar or this king is the one who's going to bring in peace. And what's, if, you, if you understand the, the history of when Paul was writing this, Paul was writing during the Roman Empire. During that time, they had a, a, something called Pax Romana which means Roman peace, but it was not peace. It was a rule where the, the Caesar had put out all these laws, and if you dare transgress the Caesar or the law, you were going to be imprisoned and killed. And if you dared oppose the kingdom, you would be taxed at higher rates and robbed. It was no peace. This is the same people that, that killed Jesus. So when he's writing this to the people, when he's saying, when they say peace and safety, don't believe that. He knew he was writing both to that audience then to let them know, don't believe the Romans. They don't know how to bring about true peace. 
but he's also writing prophetically to us in this very hour also. When the government says, hey, we've got a plan to bring about peace. We've got a plan to bring about this utopia or whatever it is. No man or woman on this earth can bring about peace. Only God, who is the prince of peace, can bring that about. And he tells them, listen, the people who are in the night, they sleep in the night. They do the things in the night under the cover of darkness. So they're, not, they're going to be overtaken as a thief. But he says in no uncertain terms that the church is not of the night. We should not be caught by surprise at the return of Christ. We should not be caught unaware when he returns. And I can't help but think of the, the parable of the ten virgins. Anytime I talk about end time, I, I always have to bring this parable up. Because the term virgin here is referring to spiritual purity. It's, it's a reference to the church. So we have ten virgins, ten church members, if you will. Ten people who knew truth. But out of those ten, only five were watching. The Bible says only five had their lamps ready, trimmed and full of oil, watching for the return of the bridegroom. And five were not. So when the bridegroom returned, the five who were watching went with the bridegroom. But the five who were not were left. And this is a, a warning to the church. Gracing these pews is not enough. You must watch, be sober, be diligent, be doing ministry. And this is why he says over and over that we are to increase in love. Because when we have love, true love, godly love, it not only causes us to grow closer to God, but it should cause us to be more like God, meaning that we care about what he cares about. We want to carry out the ministry and mission that he came to carry about. We are uh, ambassadors for Christ, right? So his mission must become our mission. Paul is trying to strike a balance for the church. He is telling them that you have hope even in the presence of your pain. But don't let your hope let, allow you to neglect the mission that I've called you to. Don't allow your head to be so far in the clouds that you can just sit there and neglect those else who are hurting also, who need to hear the mission. Now, as the chapter finishes out, starting in verse 14, I call this a rapture-ready checklist. Because what he does is he lays out, he says, church, watch, be sober, be vigilant. And then he gives them a very a short list of instructions. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. That right there lets you know that if you are to be watching, if you are of the day, you must also be taking care of those who are hurting. You must also be looking out for those who need that salvation as well. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Little side note here. Prove all things. The only way you can prove all things is if you know the word of God. The word of God is truth, right? So how do you tell if something that is being said to you is truth? 
You compare it to the rule book. This is why Paul said that the Bereans were much more noble than the Thessalonians. Because the Jews that were in Berea, when they heard the word, they immediately heard the preaching. They immediately went to the word and said, let's check this out. Let's see if this is true. That's how we are to respond. You must prove all things. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you and who will also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that the epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, as I was reading through 1 Thessalonians, because most of the time when I've read through Thessalonians in the past, I've read through it many times, but I usually, I won't lie, I read through it often in the context of when I'm thinking about end time. I think about it often, especially chapter 5 and in the end of chapter 4. I read it in the context of thinking about how will this fit into this message that I'm talking about, the returning of Christ. And while Paul sets from the very beginning, the very first letter that he writes, he finds it so incredibly important to talk about the return of Christ because that's where our hope is, right? That's, that's what we're waiting for. That's the point of all of this. He continually goes back and refers to affliction, to pain, to trouble. And he encourages the people not to be moved by the trouble, not to be moved by the affliction, but not only that, not only to not be moved by it, but that they are to increase in their love toward those that are causing them the affliction. And I kept wondering, why was Paul so concerned about this? Why was this so important to Paul that he kept pointing this out over and over? And he does this in other letters as well, that he talks about love over and over. And he, and he, he tells the people that how they are to treat others. And then I kind of began to th think about something that one of the main formulas that as he, he divides these letters is he always points people back to Calvary. In all of the letters that you will read written by Paul, while he does give instruction and encouragement, he always does it in the lens of pointing people back to Calvary. So I want to watch a short little video. I think we'll kind of tie some of this together and why Paul was so adamant about tying this back to affliction and tying it back to Calvary and to what Christ did. Everything hinges on this fact. Jesus is going to return. Now, this particularly concerns the persecuted and spurned, rejected and broken, like those who received the letters of first and second Thessalonians. Paul came to a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica where he provided a defense from scripture that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He invited the Jews and God-fearing Greeks to believe in this deliverer who came and would return. But despite the proofs he gave, it was mainly the Gentiles who confessed faith while the Jews incited a mob to throw Paul out of Thessalonica. 
This left the Thessalonians with only three weeks of Paul's teaching, very few leaders, and an angry mob set on crushing the faith of these new believers. But Paul, after learning about the continuing faith of these beleaguered Thessalonians, sent Timothy back with a letter to strengthen and comfort them. For while Paul was away, those who embraced his message were beaten, marginalized, and debased. So much so that some of them were even persecuted for Jesus' name all the way to the grave. This made for a difficult challenge to these new believers' faith. But in 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages them that their faith in Jesus is not in vain. For in their persecution, they are actually joining him in his death and crucifixion. You see, their pain and Jesus's form a connection. Since they experienced Jesus's punishment, they will also experience his protection. They will taste his welcome because they tasted his rejection. They will share in his strength since they have shared in his affliction. Since they have joined Jesus in his death, they will certainly join him in his resurrection. For just as Jesus rose from the dead, he will raise all who put their faith in him. Jesus will descend from heaven and call all who believe to be with him forever free from violence and oppression with its darkness like night. They will dwell forever with Jesus in his salvation and light. Paul tells them to encourage each other with these words. For everything hinges on this fact. Jesus is going to return. But things get worse. Without Paul present, many forces tried to reverse the truths about Jesus' return Paul taught them at first. And the most perverse teaching that coerced the Thessalonian converts was the view that Jesus had already returned. Their greatest hope had already occurred, and it either wasn't as life-changing as Paul had assured, or they had entirely missed it. And while we don't know how this exact teaching got twisted, its very existence devastated the hopes, lives, and commitments of the Thessalonians trying to persevere under affliction. Maybe Jesus had returned, but their suffering was unaffected. Maybe Jesus came back, but they were rejected. Maybe Jesus saw their suffering and just didn't care. Maybe he already came and just left them there. Thessalonica had been infected with this lie about Jesus's return and it needed to be corrected. So Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians to tell them that this view was erroneous and this truth had never been more important for them to learn because everything hinges on this fact. Jesus is going to return. Paul wrote plainly 
that the world had not yet seen the second coming of Jesus. And they can know that for several reasons. For one, they are still suffering. So God's perfect kingdom cannot yet have come. Instead, their suffering is actually evidence of just how just God's justice will become as their persecutors add some after some to the evil that needs to be undone. They are afflicted not because they've missed the return of God's Son, but because their afflictors are continuing to earn their own affliction. In fact, the whole world is subject to this condition. There is so much evil, so much derision, so much injustice, so much division, that we long for justice to come to fruition. But since justice has not yet arisen, evil must still have a future opposition. The fact that evil is not yet done is proof that Jesus has not yet come. But when he does, the afflictors will be afflicted. The vengeful will be avenged. The wicked will be convicted. The guilty will be condemned. Everything hinges on this fact. And both us and the Thessalonians can find comfort in these words. That evil will be shut out from his presence and ours when Jesus finally returns. Hey, I'm David with Spoken Gospel. Thank you so much. It's an interesting dichotomy to me to think about how there are passages in the Bible that talk about God bringing justice to the wicked. How that God is going to bring punishment upon those who do evil. But on the same side of the token, we are called to love those who despitefully use us. To love those who, who do evil against us. Jesus says, don't be surprised when they hate you because they first hated me. But the way that you reconcile those two things is like this. When I look at my life, I think about all the things that I've done. First, how that while I was still yet a sinner, living in my wickedness, God loved me. While I hated God in my actions, because that's what sin is, opposing everything that is holy, God still loved me. And he was merciful toward me. And that mercy has continued to reach into my life. And even though I walk with God now, I, I make mistakes. But his mercy is there still calling me, longing for me to live after him. But there will come a moment, a time, when that mercy ends. But let's not get it twisted. Only God, who is perfect, will bring about the judgment to the wicked. It is not our job. You see, because the moment that we look at someone who is doing wrong and begin to cast judgment on them, we stand in a dangerous place. Because God's mercies are made new for us every day. Why are we trying to shortchange them of the same opportunity? 
the way that Paul is trying to teach the church in Thessalonica is to say that God loved you so much that he has brought me here to speak to you, to deliver you out of all of your wickedness. He loves you so much that he died on a cross for you. And therefore, that love that I keep telling you to increase must look at other people in the same way. That just, though they despitefully use you, though they say things that are hurtful toward you, your love for them should be so much that you realize it's not them you're battling, but it is the sin within them. And we must love them enough that we want to see them saved. So while it is hard, while it is a, a continual process, we must extend that love and mercy toward others every day, just like God extends it toward us. This message that Paul taught to the very first church in Thessalonica still stands to the church of Omaha today. Church Christ will return. He will bring about his perfect kingdom. Until he does so, we must love others. We must love them enough to speak the truth, even if it causes them to be angry with us. Remember the story that I told in the very beginning of the message about how that I as a nurse look at someone and I realize that what they are doing is causing their issues. And in love, I'm trying to tell them to stop. But because they feel guilt or shame or pride or whatever it is, they lash out at me. But in my love, I must look past that and still say those things. And so it is for us with this Christian message. There will be times that we share the gospel and we have it thrown back in our face. But that doesn't mean we stop sharing the gospel. What it really means is that we've hit a nerve. It really means that that person is feeling the conviction of God and their sin doesn't like it. It's rising up in them and causing them to push back. And what that should be for a sign for you is you need to pray for that person because you never know one more word, one more person saying one more thing would be that moment where they have that breakthrough. Only God knows. Let's all stand. I want to close just, just with a minute of prayer, just for everybody to pray in your own way that God would help us first to be grateful for the promise of his return, to never lose sight of that, to never take our eyes off of that because the moment we take, stop looking at the return of Christ, we will lose the hope ourselves. But that we also grow in our own love toward others here and those out in the world. Lord, I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you are going to return, oh God, and that all of these struggles and trials, all of the wickedness and the hurt and the pain will all be washed away in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, that you will bring about true peace, heavenly peace within our lives, within this earth, oh God. I thank you for your mercy that is new for me every morning, oh God, that while I still make mistakes, you are patient with me, O oh God. I pray that TCO will continue to be a place of hope and healing. But let us grow even more. Let us grow in our love. Let us grow in the hope that we preach and teach. Let us grow in the healing that we show toward others, O oh God. Let us carry the gospel outside of these four walls, Lord Jesus.
Let us be truly ministry-minded because that is what you love and therefore that is what we must love. If we are to experience revival on the scale that you want, it's not going to happen here in this building, but it's going to happen out there in the world where we live the life, where we show the love, where we bring about the mercy and peace of God. Lord, I thank you. Oh, Lord, forgive me for when I've been judgmental, oh God. Forgive me when I've looked at others down the tip of my nose and said, how could they do that and why can they be that way? Lord, forgive me. Help me, oh God, to grow in love, to decrease that you might increase. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. We love you and we pray all these things in that wonderful, merciful name of Jesus, that perfect name of Jesus, the man who knew no sin and yet became our sin, the man who took upon himself the cares and afflictions of this world, the man who left his throne in glory to suffer so that we could have peace. Oh God, I am so thankful. I am so thankful, Lord. Let us heed the words of Paul that we rejoice in everything, that we rejoice in our affliction, that we rejoice in our troubles and our trials because it means that we are with you, oh God, that we are doing your kingdom business, oh God. I thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, oh God, in your name, Jesus, amen. Church, for those of you who had the opportunity to be out at Nebraska Conference, we had great church. We heard great messages. And we all need those moments of, of refreshing. We all need those moments of encouragement. But we must never forget that the encouragement is not for us just to feel good we must feel encouraged that we are re-energized to face a world that is hurting. That we are, we are at peace so that we can face a world that needs Jesus.